You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. It's called the silent killer because it's colorless, odorless, and tasteless. It's a poison that won't sting, it won't burn, it won't irritate, and in fact, it won't, you won't even feel it. It can kill you in your sleep and you won't feel a thing. It enters the body through the lungs and once it's inhaled, it passes from your lungs and it goes into your bloodstream where it attaches to the hemoglobin molecules that normally are carrying oxygen. Oxygen can't travel on a hemoglobin molecule that already has this poison attached to it. And so what happens is the exposure continues. This poison will hijack more and more of the hemoglobin molecules and the blood will gradually lose its ability to carry enough oxygen to meet the needs of your body. So what happens then is individual cells begin to suffocate and die, and without enough oxygen, eventually all your vital organs, such as your brain and your heart, are essentially suffocating. In minutes, you can lose consciousness, and a few minutes later, you suffocate and die. Does anybody know what this silent killer is? You can just go ahead and say it. Carbon monoxide, good. Exactly, it's carbon monoxide. It's exceedingly dangerous. You know, more people die from carbon monoxide exposure than any other kind of poisoning. And what makes it so pernicious is that because of its nature, you can't see it, can't smell it, you can't taste it. It is virtually undetectable on its own until it's too late. That's why all residential homes per building codes have carbon monoxide detectors because you need help to see what you can't see. You need help to taste what you can't taste. You need help to discern and detect the silent killer. This morning we're continuing on our series through the book of Esther and we come to chapter 6 and we'll see another silent killer. Pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. Pride is a silent killer. Given its nature, it's essentially odorless and tasteless and colorless. It is virtually undetectable on its own until it's too late. It poisons you without you even knowing it. There's this, this dynamic that the more proud you are, the less proud you think you are. So the more pride you have, the more undetectable It is. It hides itself and poisons you. And like carbon monoxide, you won't feel a thing. Pride is the silent killer of the soul. In chapter 6, we get an extended dial, or we, uh, we get an extended treatment of the main antagonist of the story. Haman is the main character of chapter 6, and we get to see his pride on full display. It's one of the more prominent pictures of pride in the entire Bible. So there's a lot of didactic or uh, 
uh, principial teachings on pride where you learn, you know, uh, about pride. But this gives us a picture. It gives us a portrait of pride. This morning, Esther chapter 6 gives us a public service announcement, a PSA, to alert us to the danger and devastation and deadliness of pride. And we'll divide our time together in three movements. The first movement, we'll see the rise of pride. We'll see that in verses 1 to 6. We see how Haman's pride rises in his life. And then second, in verses 7 to 13, we'll see the fall of pride. Pride always goes before the fall. The more you exalt yourself, the more humiliated you will be. And third and finally, we'll look at the cure for pride as we consider the passage as a whole. So we'll see the rise of pride, the fall of pride, and the cure for pride. So let's start together in verse 1 to see the rise of pride. Here again the word of the Lord. On the night that the king could not sleep, he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So as chapter 6 opens up, we're introduced to yet another seemingly inconsequential coincidence. We've seen these all over the book so far. And tonight, in this, in this uh, chapter, the king's having a hard time going to sleep. The way the Hebrew reads in this verse, it reads literally like this. And, and the sleep of the king fled from him. The sleep fled from him. The way the Hebrew is written pictures sleep fleeing or running away from the king. If you remember, we've said that this is the only book of the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned at all. And so it's a literary device of the author to hide God in the details. So he'll, he'll use different constructions that if you're paying attention, you go, oh, God is at work here, but we're not going to mention his name. And here we see another one of those, that, that sleep is running away from the king, and it begs the question, who chased sleep away from the king? Well, it's none other than the providential, sovereign God ensuring that the details of this night go exactly as God has planned. Because God is on the move and he is working in and through all these seemingly inconsequential details that are incredibly consequential and important. So this night the king is restless, he's sleepless, and so he calls for the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, to be read over him. It's like if you were having a hard time going to sleep and you said, oh, just read to me some history books. Now all of us, except for Sam in the room, would fall asleep immediately. So that's what he's doing, saying, I'm having a hard time going to sleep, so bring me the book of boring details so I can fall asleep. Now, history tells us that ancient kings kept meticulous records of what happened in the daily affairs, and the Persians were no exception. So the king figures maybe the droning sound of the details of history read over me would put me to sleep. I think it's a great idea. I would have fallen asleep very quickly. And as the details drone on, the reader comes to these events from five years ago where Mordecai had alerted the king to an assassination attempt on his life. Remember that from chapter 3. 
Mordecai had alerted the king. He had found out that, there, that these two eunuchs were planning to kill him. And Mordecai sounded the alarms and told the king. And the, the assassination attempt was thwarted. And so um, missing in the details was, well, how did we reward him? What did we do for him? I mean, he saved my life. We should have done something for him. And it's really important for the king to reward those who show that kind of loyalty so it would um, incentivize further loyalty, right? Think about it. If you had been done something great, like saving the king's life, but nothing was done for you, what happens the next time you hear something like this? You're going to think, well, that king, he snubbed me. He didn't, he didn't do anything for me. And so you might not be as likely the next time to offer your services. So it was really important. Let's make sure we give them some land or give them some money so they would continue to be loyal. And if Mordecai had been rewarded, then the Chronicles would have recorded it. Again, they kept meticulous details. So the logic follows, since there was nothing in the record books... The only logical conclusion was that Mordecai's loyalty had gone unrecognized and unrewarded. See, there was a negligence that needed to be corrected. So instead of putting the king to sleep, this actually put the king into action. Look at verse 4. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Now, keep in mind, last chapter ended with Haman plotting to kill Mordecai. You remember that? The scene ends with Haman ordering a construction crew to build a gallows 75 feet high. That is like three two-story houses high. There's no cranes. There's no lifts. They have to do this all by hand. Haman's certainly not going to be the one to do it. But he orders his crew to do it. And he wants it so high, so grotesquely tall, that it sends a message. No one messes with me. I am so important, so special that if anyone thinks about not bowing down to me, this is what you can expect, to be hung on a gallows 75 feet tall. This structure is so impractically tall. Like, how do you even get them up there once you've built this thing? It's so unnecessarily tall. It is all about his ego. I don't think this is hyperbole. I really do think he had a 75-foot tall gallows built, and it just shows the rise of his pride. It shows just how far pride will go. Doesn't matter how impractical it is. Doesn't matter how unnecessarily tall it is. Pride says, I want it, so I should have it. And as we're reading this, we also get a foreshadowing. We're almost expecting, like, something's going to happen to this guy. Look how prideful he is. How great will be his fall. Now back to the narrative. The king is awake now. He's kind of alerted into action like something needs to be done. He hears something moving in the outer courts. He's like, who's out there? It's Haman. And he's like, oh, Haman. He's my second in command. He will be a great guy to help me honor and reward Mordecai. Again, just think about all these coincidences. The king can't sleep. And who happens to be in the court? So the king says, yeah, you'll do. Come on in. 
In verse 6, as Haman came in, the king said to him, What shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said, Well, that's a wonderful question. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Now, I noticed as Marie was reading, some of you started chuckling. Why? Because we see the comedy of errors. As the readers, we can see what's beginning to happen. So the king is seeking advice from Haman. Hey, how should we honor someone whom I would delight to honor? And Haman, he's so full of himself, he doesn't ask a single question to find out, king, who are you wanting to honor? He's so prideful, he assumes there's nobody in the entire kingdom whom the king would want to honor more than me, right? I'm Haman. It is inconceivable to Haman that there could be anyone throughout the vast empire of Persia on the king's radar that he wants to honor more than him. Isn't this the nature of pride? You are so incredibly self-focused that almost no one else exists. It shows just how poisonous pride can be. And this shows just how poisoned Haman has become. Now at this point, it would be helpful for us to get a working definition of pride. And I think C.S. Lewis offers one of the most insightful definitions for pride. He says this, pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. Ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. So let's break that down. Ruthless. The word ruthless means that you have no compassion for others. So you're so self, not only are you focused on yourself and what you want, but because of all of that focus and attention, it leaves nothing else for anybody else. Therefore, you will do anything to get your way, even at the expense of others. So it's ruthless, but it's also sleepless, meaning there's no rest. Pride is never content. Pride is never at ease, never satisfied. It's ruthless, sleepless, and it's also unsmiling, which means no joy, no laughter. It's miserable. These adjectives describe the main idea of pride, which is concentration upon the self. Everything becomes about you. The world revolves around you. You are the center of the universe. Pride is self-focused, self-interested, self-centered, and self-absorbed. Pride is always asking what about me? Now, at this point, if you're thinking about somebody else, you may be prideful. But that's the nature of it. We hear all these things described, and you're like, I know someone like that. And you're not immediately thinking about yourself. Pride is always asking, what about me? What do I want? Am I getting what I deserve? Pride is inherently ungrateful because it is entitled. Let's play back some of the events of Haman's life. Maybe it's too personal to think about ourselves for the moment. Let's just think about Haman's because that's a little safer. Back in chapter 3, when Haman was promoted to the grand vizier, the highest position in the king's cabinet, there's no gratitude in his life. Only a need for constant affirmation and 
attention. Do you remember that when he became the grand vizier, the king made a decree, made it law that you had to bow down and pay homage to him? Now, we skipped over that at the time because it seemed like an insignificant detail, kind of like maybe that's standard protocol. Well, this is a culture that intuitively shows honor and respect to people in high positions, meaning it's so embedded into the culture, you don't need to legislate it. Everyone just automatically gives homage and honor to people in high positions. Why would the king have to make it law? I think hidden in those details here is that he was not a person that people wanted to respect and honor. And so the king made it a law. His character was such that people had hesitations and reservations about bowing down to him. And his pride couldn't take anything less than constant approval and homage everywhere he went. So by law, people had to bow down and show him attention. And that's really where we're, why we're in this predicament, because Mordecai refused to do so. In any case, we see no joy in his promotion, only ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon himself. And Mordecai, who defies the law and refuses to bow, becomes his undoing. In chapter 3, the writer says, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But when he disdained, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Notice this. One man's disapproval is enough to fill Haman with fury. This isn't justified anger. It's disproportionate anger. And the sin underneath his sin, the sin underneath his anger and fury is the sin of pride. How dare anyone not see how important I am? I saw this play out in real time at a Little League game the other night. To make a long story short, our team had won the game. And as we were going through the line to shake hands, one of my players, an 11-year-old, snubbed one of the other coaches. He, so he's going through the line shaking hands, and he gets to this one particular coach, and he pulls his hand up. Cool hand Luke there, man. He pulls his hand up. He wouldn't shake hands with him. Now, I later found out that the reason he didn't shake his, this coach's hand is because Earlier in the game, that coach had been rude to him and another player. Now, I don't think that's the right way to handle conflict, but regardless, he's 11. So he dealt with it in an, an 11-year-old kind of way. But in that moment, the way this coach reacted, you would have thought that the boy had slapped him in the face. I mean, this guy was filled with fury and rage at the notion that this boy would not honor and respect him. And what played out, friends, was unsightly, it was inappropriate, and it was embarrassing for a Little League baseball game. And it was all about pride. It was all about pride. He could not handle the thought that someone, even an 11-year-old boy, would not acknowledge his own self-importance. No self-reflection to go, why might he not want to shake my hand? Not, how can I use this as a teaching moment 
to talk to him and his coach about, hey, that's not how you handle conflict. None of those things. Just rage and fury. And with Haman, it didn't stop there. Not only was he filled with fury towards Mordecai, but the ruthlessness of his pride drove him to seek the genocide of the entire Jewish population. Later, in chapter 5, we saw Haman. He, had, he was leaving a private dinner party with the king and queen. Right? In all of Persia, the king and queen invited one person to dinner, and it was him. And you would think, man, that should just be enough to fill your tank of importance, right? Bible tells us he's glad and joyful for a moment as he considers how important and special he must be to be invited not to the queen's table, not for one, but for two private dinners. But then what happens? He sees Mordecai. And as he passes by, Mordecai just stands there. And in that moment, his rage rages on. His fragile ego is crushed and rage and fury replace gladness and joy. See, even though it's only a matter of time before all the Jews in Persia are put to death, he will not be content until Mordecai is hung. So he calls his friends over to his house. He spends the evening rehearsing to them about how important and awesome he is. He goes on and on about his wealth. But all of his belongings, his possessions, his land and power and prestige. And what does he say? Listen to this. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. His position is not enough. His wealth is not enough. Why? Because pride is never satisfied. Nothing is ever enough. And so now he's going before the king. And the king asks, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? He's going to the king to say, can I kill Mordecai and the king interrupts him before he can get his question out and says who should I what should be done to the man whom the king delights the honor to honor and because of his self-focus he assumes that he must be thinking about him he's so self-absorbed that he can't even consider the fact that there might be someone else in the kingdom that the king might delight to honor he didn't stop to ask did I do something to to like deserve this have I done something recently that the king might want to honor me for? No questions, no self-reflection, just ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling, concentrate, concentration upon himself. Seven Mile Road, do you see his pride? But more importantly, do you see your own? Because it's easy to see the pride in others. But given its nature, it's very hard to detect in our own Life, And I think one of the reasons why we have this chapter in the Bible is that this chapter would become a mirror for us. As we see Haman's pride, by the Spirit, will we see our own. Now pride can come in two main forms. You have the superiority kind of pride, and you have the inferiority kind of pride. The superiority kind of pride is the most recognizable. It's got the most followers on Instagram. It's the puffed up form of pride. You compare yourself to others, and guess what? You always come out on top. You feel like you deserve the attention and approval of those around you. And when you don't get it, you will become angry, and you will become determined to do something about it. So that's the superiority kind. But there's also another kind of pride that often goes unrecognized, and it's the inferiority kind. This one's often misdiagnosed because it doesn't seem like pride. 
but it definitely is. This is the form of pride where you are incredibly negative toward yourself. You don't like yourself. You're constantly down on yourself. That inner monologue that we all have is always self-defeating. It's always negative. You're incredibly self-conscious. You're overly critical. And like all forms of pride, you're completely self-focused. And that's the tie that binds them together. That's the common thread. Pride is always self-focused. Always comparing. Biblically speaking, the opposite of pride is humility, humbleness. Now we often think humility is thinking negatively about yourself, but that's not what humility is. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less often. It doesn't mean you never think about yourself. The Bible talks about looking out for your own interests, but it says don't become so absorbed with your own self-interests that it takes up all your time, all your attention, and never think about the interest of others. Pride will fill all of your marginal time on yourself. It's always thinking about the self. So here's some questions to consider to help detect pride in your own life. If you're a note taker, these would be good questions to write down. Maybe consider for the moment, not the possibility that you have pride in your life. Assume for the sake of your soul that because you're a sinner and that pride is at the very center of sin, that every single one of us has pride lurking in our heart. That's all of us. So number one, consider your need for attention. Think about when it comes to attention, your level of need for it. Again, remember pride's self-absorbed. Pride wants others to join in that self-absorption. So do you feel the need for the focus of others to be directed towards you? Do you find yourself in conversations, not really listening to what's going on, but finding ways that you can insert yourself, your achievements, uh, your, your skill sets into that conversation to make people think well of you? You're not, not really there for the, 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 the communal aspect of the conversation. You're looking for ways to insert yourself. Do you act in ways to become the center of attention? You walk into a room and you go, what do I got to do to get everyone in here looking at me? How do you feel when others are the ones in focus and not you? When someone else is promoted, when someone else is highlighted for their achievements. Friends, pride craves attention. It needs it. It wants it. Number two, consider your posture when you're criticized or critiqued consider your posture when you're criticized or critiqued now we're also pretty good at hiding those things so i'm talking about your inner posture inside when someone gives you helpful criticism or uh corrects you and, and i'm talking not inappropriately but i'm talking appropriately are you quick to dismiss it they don't know what they're talking about they're an idiot are you quick to defend? Well, no, here, let me tell you all the reasons why what you're saying is really not, like, fitting for this moment. Do you ever pause and consider how the critique might be warranted? Do you attack back at the person? 
Do you have a posture that says, listen, maybe some of what they're saying is unhelpful, but maybe some of what they're saying is. And instead of throwing out everything, you go, let me eat the meat and spit out the bones. What is your posture when you're criticized or attacked? Sam Storm says, pride is impervious to rebuke and insensitive to conviction. Are you impervious to correction? Are you insensitive to conviction? If so, that's pride. Number three, consider your need for approval. So you've got attention and how you deal with criticism. What about your need for approval? Are you concerned with how others think about you? Do you draw attention to your abilities and achievements? Because pride feeds on approval. You're fishing for comments. You're, you're fishing for things so that people can tell you how awesome you are. Number four, consider how you feel when others are recognized, appreciated, or promoted. Does it bother you when others are promoted? Do you find yourself quick to tell yourself and others why they don't deserve it? Oh, they got the promotion? Let me tell you why they don't deserve it. Do you view others as lower than yourselves? Do you crave the recognition that's directed at others? See, pride will not celebrate the success of others. It'll make you bitter and envious and go, why not me? And the number five, consider your sense of gratitude. Pride is inherently entitled, and entitlement never leads to gratitude. So do you find yourself saying thank you to God and to others? Are you grateful for what you have? Are you content with it? Do you see how others sacrifice for you and do you acknowledge it? Do you find yourself expecting others to serve you? Do you feel a sense of self-sufficiency with no need for God and others? Do you find it hard to forgive others? Friends, these categories and questions, they're just meant to kind of prime the pump of our heart to go looking for pride. You need to assume it's already there. Not like, I might have it somewhere. No, it's there. Now go find it. And I would encourage you to invite others to help you to see what we are often unable and unwilling to see. Because remember, pride is so hard to detect we need others to help detect it in our life. At the resource table, we have a book there by Tim Keller, who passed away this weekend, called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It is one of the best, it's, it's really a sermon that was put into a little pamphlet. It'll take you 30 minutes to read, a lifetime to consider. It's incredibly helpful in diagnosing pride. See, if pride is self-absorption, Humility is self-forgetfulness, and there's a freedom there. You might want to pick one up on the way out today. So we've seen the rise of pride. Now, quickly, let's turn our attention to the fall of pride. Verse 7, Haman said to the king, for, whom, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let him lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So when, the, when Haman considers how he would like to be rewarded 
He doesn't need more wealth and more land or position. What does he want? He wants the delight of the king. He wants everyone to know that the king delights in him. So he says that the man should be honored with the highest honor. Wear one of the king's robes and ride the king's horse. Now, this may sound strange to us. We go, give me the land, give me the money. I'll figure everything else out. But this was in a, in a, in a culture of honor and shame. This would be of the highest kind of honor. Wearing the king's robe and riding the king's horse would serve to highlight a close connection between the king and the recipient. In other words, all the dignity, all the honor, all the glory of the king that is just symbolically wrapped up in his robes and in his crown and in his horse as he is paraded around the city. All that the people would feel about the king is now transferred on to the one riding the horse. So Haman's going, everything I want is that honor and dignity and glory. And this will give me the opportunity. I will be paraded around town center. It's like going down Main Street and everyone will know the king delights in me. It would be the highest affirmation. He would have the highest center of attention. And this would offer Haman's pride a huge win. Haman needed to hear over and over that the king was delighted in him. Because he suggested, have a servant, have one of the king's highest officials take the role of a servant and publicly declare, this is what happens to the one to whom the king delights in. The king is delighted in him. The king is delighted in him. He would be noticed and he would be affirmed and it would finally be the recognition that he felt entitled to. Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing out that you've mentioned. In other words, Haman, that's brilliant. You should do that and do it to Mordecai. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have just been there and seen his face? So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed up Mordecai. And he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Can you just imagine the scene? The king says, Brilliant. This is a great idea, and let's do all that you have said to Mordecai. And why don't you be the one to dress him up and escort him around on my horse? And you know what? Why don't you be the one to say, this is what happens to the man whom the king delights to honor. Friends, this is a picture, a portrait, a case study of the principle found in Proverbs verse six, uh, chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. There may not be a better picture of more pride with a greater fall than this. Haman elevated himself, and now he felt the sting of humiliation, and he felt the pain of the fall. Verse 12, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman, after all this happened, hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened 
Then his wise men and Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So after this parade is over, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home, humiliated, covering his head in shame. And when he brings his council back together, they say, listen, if Mordecai is Jewish, it seems like the favor is bent towards him. And so you will not be able to overcome him. In other words, even though the Persians don't worship God, they're beginning to see that because God has promised to preserve and protect his people, you're not really going up against one man. You're really going up against the Lord. And yet another way, the author has found a way to give all of this credit to God without mentioning his name. Friends, we see here that where pride elevates the self, it is just a matter of time before you fall. Here's a principle that you will find all throughout the Bible. Self-exaltation will always lead to humiliation. It's just a matter of time. Just look at the devastation of his pride. It makes us foolish. When we reject criticism and we're always self-justifying, we'll never learn from our mistakes. Because pride always overestimates our abilities. Well, you will continue to make wrong decision after wrong decision to the point that you become a fool. And because you're proud, you never take responsibility for your mistakes. It's always someone else's fault. And so instead of course correcting, you will just go headlong down the path of the fool. And not only that, pride will drive all sorts of evil vices in your life. I would like to suggest to you that beneath all of your sins, the visible ones, is the hidden, invisible, undetectable sin of pride. Think about anger. Anger is what happens when you don't get what you deserve and you have an emotional response to the threat of that thwarting. So when anger is what happens when you think you should be getting something, something else comes and keeps you from getting that, and then that emotional response you feel at that threat is called anger. Well, think about it. Pride is saying, I should have it. I'm entitled to it, right? It's the sin beneath the sin. Take envy. Well, pride is competitive comparing by nature. You see what others have, and you think, why should they have that? It's the pride that's fueling the envy. Take bitterness. Pride exalts the self. It makes it hard to see how anyone could, could sin against you. How dare they do that to me? And it causes bitterness, and you hold on to the grudge. Take paralyzing anxiety. Because pride always thinks it's right when things aren't going the way you think it should, you start to worry because things aren't going as you plan and you, you stress out. You see, pride is always there, fueling and informing the visible sin. And much of the time, we spend our energy and attention treating the symptoms of the disease instead of the disease itself. Think about carbon monoxide poisoning. It would be foolish to just treat the symptoms and not go looking for the leak, right? You've got to stop the leak. We've got to go after our pride. So that brings us to our final point. 
We've seen the rise of pride and the fall of pride. Now let's look at the cure for pride. In a passage that's dripping with irony and reversals, the cure for pride is actually found in Haman's response to the king. Remember, what did the king ask? What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said, to the one you delight to honor, share with him your honor and glory and dignity. And in one sense, Haman What he's asking is driven by his pride. He craves that attention. He needs it. He thinks he deserves it. But in another sense, it's actually what all of us really need. You see, we all have a need to feel loved, valued, and accepted. There is inside of us a desire to share in the glory and honor of someone of immense worth. So in one sense, his desire is not wrong. It's just misdirected, misplaced. And because of sin, it has grown unruly, unkempt, and unsustainable. I'm grateful to Tim Keller for many things who passed away a few days ago. But he pointed this out to me uh, in my study of the passage. Listen to what he writes. He says, what we need is this ultimate assurance of who we are an ultimate assurance of our worth. We need someone like that loving us like that. We need someone we think the world of thinking of us. We need the praise of the praiseworthy. See, Haman didn't ask for the wrong thing. That's what's wrong with us. That's why we all have a problem with pride. We all have this problem. That's why we're so needy all the time. And then here's the line. It undid me this week. He didn't ask for the wrong thing. He asked the wrong king. What Haman asked wasn't wrong. He just went to the wrong king. Friends, what I want us to see, Haman's need for approval, attention, to feel worthy, lovable, valuable, that's not wrong. That's human. He just directed it at the wrong person. What he did was looking for approval in everyone and everywhere but in God. See, when we go to God for our sense of worth and value, here's what's going to happen. First, we see someone who is truly worthy of our attention and affection. God is the only one worthy of our admiration, our affection, our attention. And when you cast your gaze upon him, you start to see yourself in light of who he is. That's why we begin our gatherings by confessing our sins. We see, God, you are holy, and immediately we say, we are not. And what does that do? It begins to humble us. One of the most humbling things you can ever do is say, God, you are God, and I am not. And you realize, I shouldn't be the center of attention I shouldn't be the object of everyone's conversation. Why? Because he should be. God should be the center of our attention and our affection. When we start to see our lives in light of him, we start to trust him and to look to him for wisdom and direction. It gives us a new standard for life instead of a self-constructed one where we're constantly busying ourselves trying to build our own kingdom 
we start to see the importance of his kingdom and our role and place in it. And here's what's beautiful. We find an acceptance and love that no one can rival. See, when you know that you've been loved like that, seen like that, valued like that, that can't be displaced by anything else. When we find an acceptance and love in him, it will free you from the frenzy of trying to prove yourself. When you look to God for your sense of worth and value, you will be freed from the prison of self-importance and the pride of endless self-exaltation and absorption. Can we just all agree that the frenzy of trying to prove ourselves to other is so exhausting. It is so unfulfilling. I think one of the main reasons why we are so stressed, so tired, and so worn out is because we are constantly trying to find someone or something to validate our existence. Unfortunately, Haman's fall and humiliation doesn't cause him to look elsewhere. He mourns his fall. He hides in shame. But he never goes beyond that. He's experiencing worldly grief, but not godly repentance. He doesn't say, where else can I look to find dignity, worth, and value? Now, the point of this case study is not to point to Haman and say, what a terrible person. That's easy. That's obvious. The point is to detect the pride in our hearts and acknowledge it. So I've got some homework for you. I want you this week to find some time, give yourself an hour, and I want you to read through Proverbs 15, verses 25 to 33. I'm going to read it quickly for us and tell you what to look for. Proverbs 15, 25 to 33. It's a whole section on pride. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and good news refreshes the bones. The ears that listen to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Sometimes when we read Proverbs, it can seem like they're just a random assortment of sayings from wise dudes, but in actuality, it's, it's a collection. So a lot of times they're these, these Proverbs are put together for a purpose, and that's what we have here. And this, from uh, the ones we just read, 25 to 33, is a, a collection of Proverbs themed around pride, and it works by way of contrast. So the main goal here is that God opposes the proud, but he is near to those with a humility that's born out of the fear of the Lord. And you see that theme built out by the beginning and the end of those Proverbs. They, they form kind of a bookend. And then everything in the middle is an exposition of how pride and humility work. And what's going to happen is this proverb is going to challenge uh, you to consider pride in your thought life. It's going gonna, it's gonna to challenge you to consider pride in your financial dealings. It'll call you to think about your speech to others. And ultimately, it's going to call you to consider how you do with correction and reproof. 
And then in contrast, it offers us a path towards humility as we consider how to be a people marked by gracious words, to work for justice, to heed instruction and correction. It gives us the hope to know that the Lord is near and he hears the prayers of the righteous. So my encouragement is you would take this homework, let it be one of your devotions this week, and open up your heart to let the word of God not only expose the pride of your heart, but offer a path towards humility. C.S. Lewis said in his chapter on pride in Mere Christianity, he said, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I think, I, I, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to recognize that one is proud. And it's a biggish step too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Step one to becoming humble is to recognize that you're prideful. So friends, let's take that first step together. Or as one of our modern poets has said, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. If you know, you know. Let's just admit it, guys. We're the problem. We're proud. And from there, we can begin the path to humility. And as we close, yet again, let's remember that this story in Esther is gospel-shaped. Haman suggests that the one in whom the king delights should be dressed in royal robes, seated on the king's horse, and led by a servant parading around the city saying, this is what happens. This is what the king does to the one in whom he delights. Do you see the gospel there? Though we don't deserve it, in the gospel we're treated like royalty. We are dressed up in the glorious robes of Christ's righteousness. We're seated high above our station with dignity and honor and the one of immense value and dignity and worthy, the truly praiseworthy one delights in us. See, every one of us has a need to be delighted in. And that delight becomes more delightful when the one who delights in you is the ultimate one, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we get to share in his dignity and his glory as Jesus himself leads us and says over and over this is what happens to the one in whom the king delights the on, to honor. And it makes it all the more significant when we realize that Jesus Christ, the king of ultimate glory, takes the form of a servant. He empties himself of his glory. He gives us his robes. And though he knew no sin, he became sin. He became unglorious so that we could become glorious. He took what we deserve so that we could get what he deserves. And when you let that reality form and drive and shape your life, you will, will start to walk on that pathway towards humility. But you've got to own that. You've got to receive that because you can't just glibly say, I believe God exists and I think Jesus died for my sins. That's, that's too distant. That's still keeping God at bay. What you have to see is that Jesus became undignified so that we could become dignified, that he gave up his glory so that we could become glorious, that he gave up approval so that we could become approved. You have got to own that great reversal of 
the gospel. That's got to become personal to you. In other words, that truth has to move from the head to your heart. But the truly praiseworthy one delights to honor you. And when that happens, your soul will find rest. Let's pray.